0: An animal talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal talking animal, talking animal. Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here.
1: Good morning. This is Talking Animals. My uh, guest today is Adam Roberts, Executive Vice President of Born Free USA, which he co-founded in 2002 to uh, bring over the message and mission of the UK-based Born Free Foundation to the U.S. Adam has a wealth of expertise across many areas of animal welfare, including international wildlife trade, captive wild animals, and animal sanctuaries. We'll uh, speak with Adam presently also later in the show We'll have a brief chat with Laurie Walker, director of the USF Botanical Gardens, about the beekeeping workshops they offer each month. The next workshop is this Saturday. Right now, though, with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 2399 663 or emailing dj at wmnf.org. Let's welcome Adam Roberts back to Talking Animals. Good morning, Adam.
2: Okay, it's so good to be back with you. Thanks for having me
1: on again. Uh, absolutely, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think when you were on the show, this was that was about some some eight years ago, and I think I've probably managed to alienate all the listeners I had back then. So, for those listening today. It might be useful to just start off by asking you to sort of take us through the beginning a little bit, provide a bit of an overview of uh, Born for USA, what it is and what it does.
2: Yeah, no problem. We're uh, we're a national animal advocacy and wildlife conservation organization with offices in California and Washington D.C. I'm um, based in Washington, and we fundamentally work in four key issue areas: uh, trying to protect wild fur bearers from the fur trade, trying to stop the uh, illegal wildlife trade internationally, and elephant ivory and rhino horn tiger bone and lion trophies. Uh, we look at animals in entertainment, zoos and circuses, rodeo and aquaria, and consider the animal welfare implications of that kind of captivity for wild animals. And then lastly, we look at the exotic pet trade, people who keep tigers in their backyards or chimpanzees in their apartments and try and work to protect those animals from that exotic pet trade. And then while we have that campaign portfolio uh, under our belt. We also have a wildlife sanctuary down in Texas outside of San Antonio where we give lifetime humane care to more than 600 monkeys that have come from some sort of abusive situation, whether a biomedical research lab or a roadside zoo or that exotic pet trade that I mentioned before. So we do the actual hands-on rescue of wild animals while we're also campaigning for the issues that affect
1: them. Wow, that sounds, uh, sounds pretty expansive there. And um, so, so, Adam, at this point in 2013, how closely do you work with the, uh, with the mothership, as it were, the Born Free Foundation? I mean, are you pursuing independent campaigns and projects to a certain extent, but then others dovetail, or how does that work? Yeah, well, of
2: course, the Born Free Foundation in the United Kingdom was started uh, pretty much in 1984 as the organization that we now know it today to be. And, uh, and we take our roots from them in terms of their message of compassionate conservation, uh, their goal of keeping wildlife in the wild. And obviously, we have a close link in terms of some of the campaigns. Uh, the Zoo and Fitness Campaign, of course, we share because these are problems that are shared across the ocean. Uh, as well, the wildlife trade that I mentioned is a global wildlife trade. So we do that kind of campaign work together. But, of course, we have some... Situations in the United States that are fundamentally exclusive to, um, to this land, for example, the trapping issue, uh, isn't as big a problem, if, if at all, in the U.K. So, so that's one that we handle here. But we have a, a close working relationship, not only with the U.K. office, but I dare say some of our other global offices as well. Uh, Born Free has an operation in Nairobi, Kenya, which is obviously very important since some of the work that we do uh, involves African wildlife. And then we have uh, a fundamentally newly formed organization in the past few years, Born Free Foundation Ethiopia, where we rescue uh, lions from dilapidated zoos in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, the capital, and also rescue cheetahs from the international pet trade, where people are catching cheetah cubs in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, and the surrounding countries, and shipping them to the Middle East, where they're taken in and kept as pets so as as I say this this trade is pretty expensive, and obviously born free is on the ground everywhere we can try and put a stop
1: to it for sure well well one thing you sort of touched on a couple of times adam that 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 actually hooks into uh, an item I was going to get into later in the show in the little animal news uh, info uh, segment. Maybe you want to take a moment and comment on uh, hillary clinton's you know sort of new cause or or at least more high high profile cause uh, did you see that about the uh, Saving African elephants and kind of stepping up the, uh, the efforts to sort of um, combat what's been going on with all the uh, elephants slaughtered there and the whole, you know, markets in China and other Asian countries.
2: Yeah, it's hugely important that Hillary and, of course, John Kerry, Secretary of State, and, and that they've had this sort of uh, burgeoning history of actually caring about the international trade in elephant ivory. Uh, what we're seeing today is really remarkable. Uh, And and it concerns me greatly in terms of the human capacity for learning from our mistakes in in history, especially our conservation mistakes. You know, in the 1970s and 1980s, the African elephant population, continent-wide, was fundamentally cut in half from about 1.3 million to around 600,000, and that was because of the trade in elephant ivory. And so entire families of elephants across the African continent were being gunned down and not to get too brutally gruesome, but their faces literally sawn off with chainsaws to get at the ivory tusks, which were still valuable on the Asian market. And, um, and in 1989, an international ban on the commercialization of elephant ivory was put in place, and the market for ivory dried up, the prices bottomed out, and the populations continent-wide stabilized. But over the following 20 years, individual Southern African countries such as Botswana and Namibia and Zimbabwe uh, and ultimately South Africa as well were successful in weakening that global ban to allow one-off sales of their stockpiled ivory. And that stimulated a market again. And now we've seen this sort of return to the 70s and 80s where some 30,000 elephants are being poached annually across Africa for their ivory. And it's obviously an incredibly alarming situation that Born Free has a very long history and involvement
0: with. And so
2: now that that Hillary Clinton is is sort of speaking out and saying that a focus of her work now is going to be trying to stop uh, the poaching of African elephants for their ivory, it's hugely exciting for us and and will really lend a, a face and a name uh, to the issue that we've worked on uh,
1: for so long, and and time and time again, if anybody that cares about animal welfare sees that you know, for better or worse, in this case, obviously, way way for better, that you get any sort of high profile figure, whether a politician, a celebrity, uh, whoever they might be, uh, as soon as they kind of call attention uh, to something, it it really makes a huge difference in in some inroads in and and potential legislation and all kinds of other things that uh, before someone like that steps in, everybody's working tirelessly, as, as Born for USA and many others have been, but it just becomes a different ball game. thankfully. Yeah,
2: you know, that's right. And one of the things that I've been saying, and fundamentally lamenting, but saying for a while now is that uh, the international conservation arena seems to be moving time and time again away from science, away from the numbers of animals that are poached and the number of uh, kilos of ivory that are in trade and looking at this less of a scientific issue and more of it as a political issue. You know, it's become an incredibly politically dynamic issue, and so having politicians involved uh, will really lend a, a significant effort behind our cause, and I think that's tremendously important. And, and, you know, for people who are listening who are actually interested in the ivory trade, which for many of us here in the States is going to be sort of far afield, uh, we do work on a website called bloodyivory.org, and at org, you can track some of the global seizures of elephant ivory and really see on the map how this product is moving internationally, and it, it takes a pretty interesting picture. So I encourage your listeners to take a moment and check that website out.
1: And and along those lines, Adam, just mentioning that kind of puts me in the mind of databases, and again, that's a word that, that can make some people's eyelids get heavy instantly, but but it's actually can be pretty thrilling in a knowledge is power kind of way. And and particularly maybe when it comes again to, to animal welfare and born for USA does seem to really place a premium on, on, on the value of databases. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how valuable they can be in, in your work and in tracking things. And when I was on the website a couple of times, uh, you know, leading up to, to our chat today, I put in, for example, Florida and boy, boom, bunch of incidents and items come up. Some as recently just you know, three or four days ago. So t- tell us maybe a little bit about how, how important that is to Born Free USA and, and why that's uh, you know obviously a key part of the website and some of what you do, but also how people can take that information and, and impl- implement in one way or another. Yeah, you
2: know, we think it's hugely important uh, to have some evidence behind the issues that we're working on. It doesn't really do us much good to say, you know, from an ethical perspective or an emotional perspective, we feel that animals should be protected, but then we don't have the data to back it up. So we do maintain two very important databases at BornFreeUSA.org. Uh, One is on trapping and non-target animals that are caught in these steel-jaw leg-hole traps, these traps that are put out in the the wild to catch fur bearers, and the jaws slam together with bone-crushing force, creating an incredibly dire situation, stressful, distressful for these poor animals that are ultimately obviously killed, also in horrific ways, uh, for their fur. And so we think it's really important that people not only understand The emotion behind why it's wrong to hurt animals, to be cruel to animals uh, through the trapping industry, but also the fact that people's companion animals, dogs and cats just walking on a hiking trail, may get caught in these traps as well. And so we maintain a database showing uh, every incident that we can uncover state by state of animals that are caught in these traps, these non-target animals, threatened and endangered species, or people's companion animals, or even humans that are trying to rescue their dog or cat from a trap and get hurt as well. It's important for, to paint an accurate picture of what's happening around the country uh, with the trapping industry, but also with the exotic pet issue that I mentioned earlier, the tigers in the backyard and the chimpanzee in the apartment. Uh, it's important to know where these animals are not only being kept, but where they're escaping, where they're being let loose because they can no longer be cared for appropriately by their handler. Uh, they become too big, too unwieldy where they're attacking people, biting people, scratching people. We need to know that because as we look at the state legislative landscape and decide where we, as Born Free USA, want to invest our specific legislative capacity, we need to make sure that we can show that there are real problems happening on the ground in that state that we're targeting. And so that really helps, helps us identify the pressure points around the country where either trapping is a huge problem or the exotic pet trade is a huge problem and then try and make an influence in those communities or those states by showing real world live examples of what's happening on the ground.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just just as with anything, those those facts, those specifics, when you're working on legislation or just trying to raise awareness can make all the difference in the world, because then you really do have something very tangible to point to, sometimes very gruesome and, and grim to point to, but sometimes that's what's necessary too. Yeah,
2: exactly. And look, You know, regardless of what people think about, you know, the Congress and the legislative process, the bottom line is legislators are supposed to be beholden to their constituents. And if their constituents are having their animals, their companion animals, their cherished loved family members that happen to have four legs being caught in these still leg hole traps, then they hopefully are going to have uh, a a greater interest in stopping the trapping industry in their state or at least reforming it Try and reduce some of that cruelty, and similarly with exotic pets. When we can show a legislator, look, there is a problem with people in your community or your state keeping primates as pets because they're hurting people, they're escaping, they're attacking, they're scratching, they're biting. Those legislators are going to be, hopefully, if they do their jobs, more inclined to introduce legislation and fight for legislation to stop the trade in exotic pets.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I definitely want to delve a little bit more into legislation in a moment. Let me first just say, this is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, my guest is Adam Roberts, the Executive Vice President of Born for USA. If you'd like to ask a, Adam a question about any things we've already touched on, or so other related issues, we already have one email that I definitely want to get to in a moment as well. Um, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or email DJ at WMF So, Adam, obviously Born for USA has its hands in different ways in any number of um, campaigns, programs, and and legislation, which we were just sort of touching on. Anyone who's been around the block in animal welfare circles will will probably agree that the most significant, effective way to protect animals is is to pass legislation that shores up gaps or makes it, you know, one way or another illegal to harm, neglect, abuse, exploit, whatever animals so as plugged in as you are to this world i'd love to hear what you consider say the most you know two or three most significant pieces of pending legislation and uh, depending on where people are listening maybe how people can help or how we can help take action to get get those things pushed through
2: yeah obviously you know since your listeners are going to be scattered around the country i would encourage them to come to the website the bornforusa.org and take a look at sort of the pending legislation on our map because they'll be different legislative initiatives that are of interest to different people who are listening to your show based on where they live in the country. But some of the federal initiatives that that we have in the works that all of your listeners should not only embrace but actually want to take action to support uh, include a a bill that's forthcoming that we have introduced previously called the Captive Primate Safety Act. And that's a bill that would prohibit the interstate movement of all primates if they're going to be kept as pets. So if they're going to a sanctuary for lifetime care, obviously that's not going to be affected. But if they're going in the pet trade, uh, that would be prohibited under this act. And this builds on something that I worked on more than a decade ago uh, called the Captive Wildlife Safety Act that prohibited the interstate movement of big cats if they were kept as pets, lions, tigers, leopards, cheetahs, or hybrids of those species. So this just adds primates to the list because, as we discussed earlier, our database around the country involving captive-held primates that that is an incredibly huge problem that we really need to address. So the Captive Climate Safety Act is something that people should be looking out for soon. And then another one is um, a bill to stop trapping on national wildlife refuge lands. Remarkably, many people won't realize when you think of a refuge, you think of a place that provides refuge for the wildlife who live there. But actually half, fully half, of the National Wildlife Refuge System in this country allows trapping on those lands. And so we may not be able to stop trapping in this country altogether in, in my lifetime, let alone my daughter's lifetime. But we can try and at least say on National Wildlife Refuges, no trapping should occur. And, uh, and that's something that we'll be working on. And actually, you know, one of the things we've done is put together a website called safetrails.org, which teaches people how to be sort of safe on the hiking trail where traps are concerned. Uh, how to look out for traps, how to free animals if they find them caught in traps. And safetrails.org is sort of a wealth of information about the trapping issue that relates directly to our national campaign to stop trapping on not national wildlife refuges. So, those are two of the bills and some of our core. Uh, issue areas sure. that will be coming up this
1: year, and Adam, just to follow up a little bit on the on the, on the trapping one, the national refuge lands. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, as I am here, uh, as you just mentioned, that would be pretty shocked to to find that half of those lands allow trapping. Now, is that just a carryover from sort of a very antiquated set of laws? to begin with, or how? I mean, that just that sort of just seems incredible to me in, in, in hearing it right now. I mean, is that just one of those things that uh, has just been carried over and it just hasn't been able to be uh, defeated or removed?
2: Yeah, you have a situation where you, you, know, you have to sort of face the issue honestly and realize that, that hunting and trapping and fishing are all sort of embraced in our culture historically, and, and it takes a, a significant effort and, and some strong bellwether events to change that situation, to, to change those laws, to change that dynamic. And uh, and obviously, you know, once it's entrenched, you know, once trapping is entrenched in the American landscape, uh, it takes a lot to uh, remove it. And so yeah. we have to sort of pick our battles wisely, and that's kind of what we're doing here.
1: Sure, sure. Well, yeah, that, I mean, the, the inevitability of, of, of hunting, fishing, trapping, I mean, to me, that's one thing, I'm not not Obviously, great by itself, but I guess the idea that those the, the trapping is allowed on national refuge lands just seems particularly galling. But
2: um yeah, and I, I think Duncan, it sort of has to do at the end of the day with you know these lands are for everyone to enjoy,
0: mm-hmm. and so we
2: have you know our our challenge is to explain why our perspective should override anyone else's perspective. Otherwise, it just seems like well. If these lands are available
1: for everyone to enjoy, then that means the trackers too, and and that's, yeah. that's one of the challenges that we face. Sure, sure. No, that's uh, tricky uh, tricky territory to to na- navigate at times, and uh, obviously gotcha. that's the case here. So let's talk a little bit about animal sanctuaries. I mean, really, what they are, how they work, how they how they differ from each other. I just think can be so. Uh, enormously misunderstood which you know probably serves the purposes of the uh, the lesser or, or less legitimate ones but but I know that's a, a huge interest of yours and maybe you could talk about how you became interested in in, in addressing that that kind of fuzziness and or, or even shadiness that I'm alluding to that can be part of the animal sanctuary world and then what you and and uh, the global Federation of animal sanctuaries have, have done to sort of address it
2: yeah you know my interest in animal sanctuaries sort of stemmed obviously from from the international wildlife work I do sort of when, when these animals are traded not as parts or products or trophies, but actually live animals traded from one country to another, and they're confiscated. What happens to the animals? And I've heard of some horrific stories, mostly based out of fear and a lack of knowledge about these animals and the species that they represent. Uh, You know, where uh, great apes were confiscated at certain airports in North Africa, and the people didn't know what to do with them at the point of entry, so they they burned them alive in acid in order to kill them, because that was the only way they thought they could prevent of disease, you know, there are all of these horrific stories. And, and the more I looked at it and then applied it to the work that we were doing domestically on that legislation I mentioned earlier about stopping the trade and big cats mm-hmm. from one state to another as pets, the more we started to ask ourselves, well, it's great that we might be able to stop the interstate movements of a lot of these exotic animals as pets, but when they're confiscated, being traded from one state to another, what do we do with them? well, they go to sanctuaries, well, what does that mean? How do do we identify a pseudo-sanctuary from a genuine one? And so we started a group of us to put together a set of standards that ultimately led to the formation of the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries that you mentioned, which is an accreditation body that looks at whether sanctuaries allow any breeding of animals, which they shouldn't, any movement of the animals off the property, which they shouldn't, any commercial trade in the animals, which they shouldn't. All of these aspects that we think are inherent In a true sanctuary, a real sanctuary that provides lifetime humane care for these animals. And then we accredit different sanctuaries based on that sort of gold set of standards that we've developed. And uh, the Born for USA Primate Sanctuary, of course, is GFAS accredited, as are many other sanctuaries for horses and wild animals around the country. So, you know, we think a true sanctuary has some of these sort of common elements about giving the animal as naturalistic a life as we possibly can provide and making sure that they have lifetime care at that one facility um, without any commercial trade or breeding or or other things that would sort of suggest a a commercial aspect that makes it more of a zoo than perhaps a true
1: sanctuary. And, And Adam, if someone were listening to this and hadn't, had particular reason to, to to ponder the differences uh from one sanctuary to the next i mean is there a way to fairly easily determine what what kind of status a certain sanctuary has before someone would say hey okay let's let's you know let's support them or even if possible depending on again where they fall on the criteria let's let's visit them but i mean is there is is there an ongoing sort of back to databases or other uh, lists of information is there a way for someone to, to sort of quickly uh, access the what what the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries has deemed about various uh, facilities?
2: Yeah, you know, I would ask your folks to do two things. The first is simply to visit the the Federation's website, which is SanctuaryFederation.org, SanctuaryFederation.org. And there's a list of all the sanctuaries that we've either accredited or verified as being a true sanctuary. Accredited means they've gone through the full process. Verified means we've verified that they are a true sanctuary based on all the things I just described that are important for a true sanctuary to have but haven't necessarily had all of their finances looked at, and some of the more paperwork details haven't been done yet. Mm -hmm. So if it's a GFAS-accredited or verified facility, it's definitely worth support in every way possible. But then I would ask people, if if the sanctuary you're thinking about supporting is not on that list yet, do shoot somebody involved in GFAS and the the email addresses are on the website, an email asking about a facility. It may be that the facility is is excellent and that we all personally know it and can vouch for it. It just hasn't finished going through the process yet, and I would hate for, obviously, a good sanctuary that deserves support uh, to simply lose that support just because they haven't yet made it through the accreditation process.
1: Sure. And so, Adam, do do sanctuaries then, it sounds like, Always, they want to be involved. They, they would, they would ask or apply to be assessed, and then they start through that process that you've described. And then someone looking to, to find out about a sanctuary maybe at a certain point in that process. Whereas I'm sure there's quite a few uh, sanctuaries that couldn't be less interested in applying for uh, for that kind of evaluation and accreditation, just because I think they would probably already know, you know, what the results would be. Yeah,
2: exactly right. You know, once once they reach out to us and say they want to apply, we walk every sanctuary director or whoever's going to apply on their behalf through the process, and and make sure that it's as easy a process as possible. Because our goal, of course, is to serve a, a very public good, and that is to make sure that people know the good sanctuary from the pseudo-sanctuary and uh, and give the good sanctuaries all the attention we possibly can.
1: For sure. Well, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strass. My guest is Adam Roberts, Executive Vice President of Born for USA. Uh, we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 or emailing dj at wmf. Dot org. And uh, one of our emailers, Adam, this is something I've talked about on the show a few times, but uh, in light of sort of the, 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 uh, the focus of, of uh, Born for USA's work, I'd love to know, because I, I know this isn't the only institution like this, but there's a place uh, nearby here called um, Taco Fusion. That serves okay. Obviously, you're familiar with them, so I don't really need to describe yeah. them. But, but I mean, what 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 is what is what has been the reaction to to organizations like Born for USA and others to to institutions? And I guess I should just complete the thought for people listening who may not be familiar with them. So they so they serve all kinds of um, exotic meats, you know, lion meat and other uh, you know dishes like that. I don't know. It just I, I I mean I guess I'm still dumbfounded really that 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 that, that, that happens. But I don't know. Is is it I mean, what sort of laws govern that in terms of a restaurant, or, or how, how does that work?
2: Yeah, you know, the sale of lion meat in the United States is, is an unbelievably new burgeoning phenomenon that's sort of taken me uh, slightly aback and, and, and required some intensive research and effort on our part to identify, you know, how the problem exists and what we can do to stop it. Um, you know, it started pretty much, uh, you know, five, six, seven years ago when South Africa hosted the World Cup. And a place down in Arizona decided that they were going to serve Lion Burgers in honor of the World Cup being hosted. Uh, by an African nation, of course. You know, I've been in South Africa, Kenya, all across Africa, and I don't recall seeing much lion meat on the menu. It's mm-hmm. simply not done there. Yeah. But it, but it was just it was a PR gimmick, and it worked for them. Uh, and I think it's working for Taco Fusion and for other restaurants. But but more and more, we're finding that it's happening across the country. And and Born for USA did an undercover investigation back in 2011 to identify what's going on with these lions that are being uh, raised, sold, slaughtered uh, for the meat trade. And what we found was really horrific and really frightening uh, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture not really having competency for regulating the lion meat trade. Definitely there's no regulation over the slaughter of lions for the meat trade. The Food and Drug Administration, which is supposed to be the competent authority, Mm -hmm. isn't actually or hasn't actually been inspecting the places where these animals are killed and where the meat is packaged. And so we have a, a really strong national effort right now to stop the trade in lion meat to make sure that places like Taco Fusion can't get it, let alone sell it, Uh, but we're also looking at Illinois specifically, which seems to be kind of the hub for lions going to slaughter, the meat being packaged, and then sold to different restaurants around the country, and we actually have legislation pending in Illinois to stop the lion meat trade. So it's a huge problem right now, mostly because the lion meat trade seems to have fallen through the legislative and regulatory framework that we've got currently in this country.
1: Yeah. Well, once again, I guess just like we were touching on before, a loophole or just sort of a weird gap in legislation, because it sounds like, as you're describing this, that the real issue to go after is the supplier and how that meat's being manufactured, I guess, for lack of a better word. So rather than any sort of legal action that could be taken against, say, a taco fusion or other places like that, it sounds like the focus really needs to be how that meat's being produced and who's producing it.
2: Exactly right. And you'll recall from our previous discussion already, this show, uh, that if you're moving live lions from one state to another for the purpose of slaughter, it would violate the Captive Wildlife Safety Act. So you shouldn't be doing that to begin with. So now we need to get at moving the meat from one
1: state to another in order to truly shut down the trade. For sure. So, Adam, uh, you know, this is a time of year when when elephant rides often become sort of a more um, high-profile concern, or county fairs and other events that that feature these. If I'm not mistaken, Born for USA sends out alerts when a new county fair is considering adding an elephant ride, or I think to urge a fair to stop, allowing elephant rides. I think there was an alert that went out to fairly recently, about Nevada's county fair. So just sort of coincidentally, uh, a few days ago, all the sort of top elephant experts in the world um, issued a statement condemning elephant rights. Can you talk a little bit about how those work and why, you know, fairs at this point still would would feature them? You know,
2: to the latter point of your question, I I sort of wish I could. I sort of wish I could identify why county fairs, would still offer elephant rides in 2013. I, I'm not sure if I can. I'm yeah. I'm mystified by it. Um, and but but let me tell you, you know, I mentioned before, I have a daughter, and 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 you know, as a parent, I'm even more mystified that anyone would put their child on the back of an elephant. Elephants are beautiful, magnificent, uh, peaceful creatures, but it's dangerous, and and it takes a certain kind of, of closed minded and um, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. A certain kind of individual that says, I'm going to throw caution to the wind, and my child and I, or my child alone, is going to hop on the back of an elephant and go for a ride. Uh, it may be sort of a seemingly once in a lifetime kind of experience, but the risk is absolutely not worth it. It's just, it's an idiotic thing for anyone to do. Um, and, and so I don't understand that part of it. Uh, but I do understand that, you know, when you have a business that's based on uh, el- teaching elephants, and teaching is obviously a word I. I uh, use loosely yeah. convincing, coercing elephants uh, to do these sorts of things in county fairs or in circuses or in other performing acts, um, or any wildlife other than elephants as well. You know, when that's your when that's your business, obviously you're gonna try and get as many contracts as you can. And that's what these facilities are doing, these companies are doing with, with the county fairs around the country, still trying to push forward these contracts to have elephant rides at the county fair. Some county fairs across the country have have captive monkeys and other sort of exotic performing acts. So uh, it's not as though this is the only one. Yeah. It's, just, it's just particularly egregious and, as I say, particularly dangerous. And and I'm not sure why the Nevada County, Nevada County uh, Board decided twice now, because they had a second hearing after, after approving the contract with the Elephant Ride Company the first time. Uh, again, they approved it a second time in the face of incredible, not just local opposition, but as you say, global opposition from some of the world's foremost
1: elephant experts. And I, I, I'd i like to think that that's turning up the heat. I mean, you know, when I used to live in Southern California, uh, just down the road from where we lived was the, the, uh, the fairgrounds for the Orange County Fair. So we'd go, and unfortunately, when you first walked in the gate, the first thing you would see is the elephant rides. And it was like, it was hard to know who was more depressed. I mean, you know, me and my family walking in, or the elephant's. You know, just sort of, you know, lumbering around in a circle and not to mention, yeah, the just the the potential uh, for great injury and other things for the kids that were sort of plopped down on top of them. And I just thought, oh, my God, it was, you know, I, I often just wanted to turn turn around and just, you know, head right out. But but I forget and you might know, actually, but I know in the last year or two, they stopped the elephant rides at that particular fair. And I think there was a particular outcry about the company that uh, that provides the elephants that also is one that provides elephants for movies. So do, do, does that, do you know have any specifics on that? Because to me, that was at least mildly encouraging.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, we do have that kind of development sometimes uh, around the country. And, and obviously, you know, look, a lot of the responsibility falls on us. And I, I use us in a very broad term. I mean, it's, it's you, in terms of putting this issue out there to your listeners, it's me and Born Free USA's work to educate people about why they shouldn't engage in that kind of behavior and telling the county fair boards and the local legislatures why they shouldn't allow it to happen, especially if, if they've already stopped it once uh, in, in any place around the country. So, you know, there's a big responsibility that we all share to make sure that we're getting engaged and our voices are heard. And, and you know, you mentioned the action alert that Born Free USA did on this issue and obviously, I, I would encourage folks to sign up for our action alerts at our website so that they can get all of the information we're putting out each week about ways that people can get engaged. Uh, but I think you raise a really good point. You know, how, how do we sort of stop these things from happening? And then once they stop, keep them stop? Um, You know, the fur industry is a perfect example not to change subjects completely, but I'm always amazed at how, you know, fur is, is thought to be making a comeback where the fur industry goes down for a while and then promotes fur trim, fur collars, and, sort of raises the industry again. So we really have to be super vigilant, I guess, is the take-home message yeah. on all of these issues.
1: For sure. All right, well, let's uh, work in at least one call. We're sort of nearing the end of our time, but uh, hi, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Adam Roberts.
3: Hi, this is Clay from Land Lakes. I don't know if you can report a place or not, but in Dade City, Florida, we have a place called Wild Things, which uh, profits, especially from cubs and uh, baby primates, that they, uh, you, you're... You you pay to play with them. Yeah, they don't allow you bring and, your own cameras in or any of that stuff. And and, uh, and swim
1: of, with them, right? If I'm not mistaken, yeah. yeah.
3: with the swim with the yeah. tiger cubs and with yeah. the others, they actually were on Good Morning America. But if you ever go to the place, they have the most atrocious facilities that you've ever seen in your life. These animals are in very small cages. They spend the majority of their life there, and they have a plethora of big cats and primates that are just in deplorable conditions. And yet the, the state of Florida allows them to have a license to do this because the woman who owns the place used to serve as a, uh, a, a member of, of the board for the FWC, the uh, commission for the FWC. Um, it's just something that, you know, it needs outside pressure because the state of Florida is not going to do anything about it. It's called Wild Things. They were on Good Morning America and it's horrific I mean you, if you have if you have people that do investigative you should send somebody over
1: thanks for your call clay all right yeah, are, Adam, are, are you familiar with this place?
2: You know, I am. I was interviewed, yeah. I think, for that Good Morning America piece. Okay, I, I couldn't like, remember, because,
1: uh, yeah. yeah, there's been quite a bit of coverage, and, and there's you know a number of YouTube uh, clips uh, about this place, including you know seeing these cubs, like, to me, in complete panic, swimming for the edge of the pool, which I guess is billed as, like, fun for the people paying their money to swim with the cub, but they just look horrified. Yeah,
2: you know, there are two things that I was planning on saying, and that was exactly one of them, that people, you know, forget about everything else you know about the treatment of tigers and how they're kept and everything that your caller identified, if you watch those clips, even on the mainstream TV, you know, not some undercover video, not something shot by an animal advocate, just the Good Morning America piece, you see that each one of those little tiger cubs, those poor animals, are clearly trying to get out of that pool. So it's definitely a stressful situation for them. But we talked a little bit about some of the forthcoming legislative experts that Born Free has in the works. But one of the things that's already been introduced in the U.S. Congress it's called the Big Cats and Public Safety Protection Act, and it's to stop that very kind of dangerous and unjustifiable behavior with respect to big cats, the people who swim with them, the people who take photographs with them for money. Uh, it's a dangerous situation for people and obviously dangerous for the animals as well. So, you know, if your listeners get to do nothing else after this uh, discussion is over, I would hope that they would write like their legislators urging them to co-sponsor the big cats and Public Safety Protection Act to try and stop that very kind of behavior, especially when uh, a state wildlife commission, perhaps like the one in Florida, isn't willing to act unilaterally.
1: Yeah. So, Adam, we're, we're, we are just about at the end of our time, but I just want to read you one uh, one email that came in, actually a, a bit ago, more right after we were sort of talking about the elephant slaughter, but uh, uh, the subject line says, Great guest, and it, uh, inside says, The elephant slaughter is one of the most gruesome things ever done on Earth. You deal with the cruelest parts of mankind. How do you maintain your optimism? Thank you for your great work. So uh, I guess the key question there is, how, in the midst of all this, do you uh, maintain your, your optimism?
2: Well, first of all, I have to be honest, and it's, it's messages like that from your listeners or any of our members that that really does keep me going. You know, one small kind word from somebody makes everything that I do really worthwhile. Uh, I've been doing this more than twenty years now, and I, I just say that there's there's so much to be addressed, and there's so much effort. And um, I, I guess the bottom line is, I'm awfully stubborn, and I'm not going to go away. So I just want to keep working on all these issues. And there's so much to do, and there's so much to deal with. That even when you lose in one arena there's another arena to step into and wage war. And so uh, you put the losses behind you quickly, you relish the victories for as long as you can, and you realize that what we're doing is still vitally important that you can never,
1: ever stop. Well, I think that's uh, the perfect p- point at which to, to leave this. So we've been speaking with Adam Roberts from Born for USA. Again, the website is bornforusa.org. They're also on Facebook. You can just search for uh, Born for USA. And, uh, yeah, get involved, check out the information, sign up for their alerts, uh, all kinds of ways, uh, whatever your interests are, really, Born for USA. Uh, Uh, is going to connect to them in one way or another. So, uh, Adam, thanks again for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals, and thanks for all your great work. Always my pleasure. Thank you, Okay, bye-bye now. All right, in just a few minutes, we'll speak uh, briefly with uh, Lori Walker, director of the USF Botanical Gardens, about the beekeeping uh, workshops offered at the Botanical Gardens each month. The next uh, workshop is Saturday. Right now, let's step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner. This is Bill Burr who uh, has a wonderful little role as one of Melissa McCarthy's brothers in the, uh, the new uh, hit movie, The Heat. And this is a piece from him called Dog Trainer on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals.
4: Yeah, come back four days later,
1: the dog's laying at the guy's
4: feet, all right? He's rubbing her belly, she's reaching up playing with his goatee. And he goes, go ahead, ha- have, a, have a seat. Why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, take me through your day with this dog? Immediately, I started getting like this First 48 vibe right? Like they're coming at me. So I got like defensive. I'm like, what do you mean? I take it for a hike every morning. He goes, that's good. That's good. Anything, you know, special happen on the hike? I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. She takes it. I pick it up. It's like, all right, easy. (laughs) You play any games with her? I go, yeah, at the end of the hike. I let her, I let her, you know, for reward for going on the hike, I let her run up the stairs by herself. I go, go on, Cleo. I let her run up the stairs, and I count five, 1,000, and then I run up there, and then we start wrestling. Put her in a headlock, sweep her front legs, right? But her tail's wagging, you know? She's not growling. I go, that's a good thing, right? He's like, no, it's not horrible. I'm like, why? He goes, you just taught your dog to claim the house and then fight for it every day after the hike. No wonder this thing's trying to attack the mailman, you know? So then I got upset. I'm like, wait a minute, dude, you're telling me, like, I can't even play with my dog? He's like, no, you can play with it, but you got to bring that energy back down. The problem is, is you keep amping this thing up, getting that Mike Singletary look on his face. And then by the time you walk out, doesn't matter if you're relaxed, mentally, the dog is like walking through the tunnel at the Rose Bowl, like, this is what we play for!
1: Somebody hit somebody! All right. That was Bill Burr with a piece called Dog Trainer, part of his latest special, You People Are All the Same. All right, to fill us in on the beekeeping workshops offered monthly by the USF Botanical Gardens, let's welcome Lori Walker to Talking Animals. Good morning, Lori. Hey, good
5: morning, Duncan. Thank you for having
1: me. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's jump right in. When when did you guys start offering the, uh, the beekeeping workshops and, and why?
5: We started offering them about five years ago. We got our first hive and our beekeeper at the time, Gary Van Cleef, was working on his advanced master beekeepers certification out of the University of Florida and one of his things was to um, start teaching the public about bees and about beekeeping and about pollinators. So we offered him a spot and Five years later, we have about 70, 75
1: people in our class. Well, that that uh, answered one of my questions. Um, and, and so um, can someone, because basically they're offered, if I'm not mistaken, the third Saturday of each month, I think it's 10 a.m. But uh, how does that work? That, if someone just heard about it, right now, and said, hey, that's, that's of interest to me, uh, could they just jump in, or do you have to have sort of a foundation of, of what was discussed at some or all of the previous workshops to really have this Saturday's workshop be effective for you, or how does that work?
5: Well, I think you can just jump right in.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, what we're doing from now through the end of the year is how to keep hives alive, and, and this is a good time to learn what a hive is, how to take care of it. And at every class, we have a practical where we open up all of our hives here at the garden, inspect them. What I encourage students to do is to actually sit through an entire class, an entire series of classes, before they start keeping their own bees, because then they're going to be a lot more confident. They're going to know what they're doing, and, and they don't have to have a hive at home right now. They can wait till next year. when they're a little bit
1: further along. Right, and for example, this this Saturday's class, if I'm not mistaken, the, the topic looks like it's swarm control. Uh-huh. and a uh, second hive building opportunity and uh so yeah i mean it it sounds uh, it sounds interesting especially for those who have an interest in bees and um at some point along the line i mean i know it's more like the pr- the practical aspects of, of beekeeping but is there discussions of kind of some of the weird phenomenons that have happened in, with bees and and some things that have affected um you know large larger hives across the country and that that sort of odd um phenomena
5: Right, colony collapse disorders yeah. occurring all over the world.
1: Yeah,
0: here
5: in the United States, and it's very disturbing. Sure, it's it's um, due to a number of different factors that are all compounding each other. And so, yes, we do talk about how to keep hives alive and how to control the new pests that are that are um, um, affecting hives now, like the varroa mite and small hive beetle and wax moths. And all of those will be attacking weak hives. So if we can keep nice, strong, healthy hives going, we can reduce some of the some of the, the pests that that affect them. And all along we talk about uh, best management practices and and either reduce greatly or eliminate the use of pesticides even in your own home and your neighborhood. So so we try to constantly um, teach more sustainable practices of gardening, and that in turn will help the health of the of the pollinators all over.
1: Great. So yeah, it does seem like it's all sort of a um, fairly holistic uh, kind of approach to to it, and uh, therefore the, the the broader impact can be significant. I guess absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so, if someone um, wanted to to indeed jump in this this Saturday, I mean, how would they how would they find out? How would they try to see if there's uh, space available? What what's the next step?
5: Well, they can give us a call here at the gardens. Mm-hmm. And um, it's eight one three yeah nine seven four two three two nine. Let us know they'd like to come, and we'll um, start at ten o'clock. So so we'll have a list of names. We can have a number of chairs <laughs> available for everybody, and yeah. and have a really wonderful, wonderful class. And then, if they care to stay around when we open the hives, and they can take a look, they're welcome to do that too. It's really a lot of fun when you see all the hives open and and all the activity going on inside. And, and how? Yeah, just give us a call.
1: And, and and how long? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, um, Lori, But uh, how long does each workshop uh, on on these Saturdays last? Typically,
5: it's about an hour. Okay. But we don't shoot everybody out after an hour. We we stay around and answer questions and 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 make sure that everybody's very comfortable before they leave. So so um, feel free to hang around and ask questions.
1: That's great. And in addition to the phone number, which one more time is eight one three nine seven four two three two nine, is there a, uh, a website or some other online presence where people could also kind of go to uh, to check out? Uh...
5: Absolutely. It's gardens.usf.edu.
1: Great, simple enough. All right. Well, Lori, thanks so much for filling this in, and uh, um, thanks for uh, offering this kind of interesting uh, uh, educational opportunity. It sounds like people are having fun. It sounds like I don't know if you were always uh, this much of an expert, but it sounds like you certainly become one yourself.
5: Oh, uh, I, I have have really become attached to Great. all of our girls out here. Awesome. Yeah, I really love
1: it. And how many bees are there there, by the way?
5: We have, I think, twenty hives now in our apiary.
1: Wow. And how many and bees and in each it's hive?
5: Tens of puns, tens of thousands. Wow. In each. Yeah.
1: Wow, wow. All right. Well, I uh, I have two or three puns uh, racing through my head right now, but I'm not going to say <laughs> a single one of them. So thank you again for joining us today on Talking Animals.
5: Oh, Duncan, thank you so much. And come out and visit
1: us. Okay, I sure will. Thanks. Bye-bye Thanks. now.
5: Bye-bye.
1: All right. Towards the end of the uh, show, we'll play Name That Animal Tune. The winner will uh, win a Wild Flag CD, which I neglected to give away last week because we didn't Do name that animal tune last week for some reason. So we'll do that here in a few moments on Talking Ones. Right now, I just want to uh, run through quickly a few uh, animal news and announcements. Uh, The thing I was going to start with, but uh, Adam and I kind of touched on it mostly, so you might just want to search for it if you want to get more details. But uh, in the Washington Post and probably other places yesterday, there was a piece about Hillary Uh, Clinton, uh, Rodham Clinton's uh, efforts now to really speak out and help combat the uh, elephant poaching. So, yay, Hillary. Uh, More locally, Thanks to conservation measures, Florida's endangered crocodile population has grown the, the, uh, the past 20 years from 300 to about 2,000, a wildlife official said. Still, it was rare to have one cavorting as far north as the Tampa Bay area, much less in Lake Tarpon in northwest Pinellas County. That's where one uh, was nabbed this week by an alligator trapper from Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. They uh, believed it to be 11-foot, 700-pound crocodile. Uh, they've been around in that area, I guess, for they figured for the last year or so. so Still, it was very unusual. FWSB uh, spokesman Gary Morris uh, to uh, to see an American crocodile north of Fort Myers. Previously, no crocodile had been captured as far north as Tarpon Springs. So that crocodile, this, uh, not too concerned, was sent to an unnamed rehabilitation facility until it can be released in South Florida. So. No crocodiles were harmed in the making of this report. Want to uh, mention a benefit coming up for uh, John McCune, beloved member of the Tampa Bay community, uh, music community for, I guess, upwards to 40 years. Recently had emergency surgery, and he's played uh, talking animals events, and actually was set to perform at our anniversary show last month until he fell ill. And uh, so he had emergency surgery, and like many musicians, no health insurance to speak of so uh lots of uncovered expenses so there's benefit sunday july 28th from 3 to 7 p.m at four green fields irish pub in tampa and all kinds of great bands dirty spoons and trash review gumbo limbo ronnie elliott puka uh liz hollister many others and more of the point of silent auction and raffle items that'll help uh raise uh, money for uh or these medical bills for for john so um you can go to rebound johnny just search for that on facebook or there's an actual website ReboundJohnny.com, to find out more and uh you can just donate maybe there if you aren't able to attend so i think that's it other than i just want to quickly mention and uh, we'll do a few more times the humane society of tampa bay in conjunction with the pet smart charities is offering this uh campaign to uh spay and neuter pit bulls And uh, it's the Primp Your Pit campaign that uh, starts on August 1st, an incredibly discounted rate, which we can't mention on there specifically, but it also includes a free nail trim, colorful bandana. So check that out at HumaneSocietyTampa.org. Call 813-870-3304. Just be sure to mention however way you contact them to mention Primp Your Pit so you get the the discount. So I think that's all we have time for today of that news. So... uh, I am Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is uh, TalkingAnimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal tune. This is a giveaway. You do not need to be a WMNF member. To win, there will be a prize, the Wild Flag CD. To the first person who calls in the correct title of this animal song, to 813-2399-663. And I'll give you a pretty cool, uh, good clue. Song is hooked to WNF's 70th birthday tribute to Mick Jagger July 26th at the State Theater in St. Pete and July 27th at Skippers for some 20 bands. Each night will play Stone songs and each night Talk to Mark will perform all of Exile on Main Street in order in its entirety. Wow! All for 12 bucks each night. So, And it's a flea production, so you know it's going to be extra awesome. So wnf.org for tickets. Okay, with that in mind, let's... Uh, Get to name that animal tune on Talking Animals. We'll take them really quickly. Hi, can you name that animal, too? Wild horses. Right. Okay, that was real gimme. Okay, what is your first name? Emily. Emily. All right, I'm coming back and get your information in one sec, Emily. Congratulations. Hopefully, all of us will see you at the Stone Show, too. Okay, folks, we do have a winner, and we have reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals... On uh, WNF Tampa, I'll be back next Wednesday, July 24th, when my guest will be uh, Gabriella Kalperthwaite, a filmmaker who directed the acclaimed new documentary, "Blackfish," which focuses on Tilikum, the bull orca who uh, killed his trainer at SeaWorld in 2010, actually the third person that uh, whale killed, and tracks Tilikum's history by way of a broader examination of the perils of keeping orcas in captivity. I hope you'll uh, join us for that next Wednesday. I uh, also hope you visit our website, TalkingAnimals.net, where uh, all kinds of info, archives, links to Facebook, Twitter, etc. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Talking Animals broadcast outreach consultant and Jill of all trades is Libby Busalis. my thanks to her. Thanks so much for listening. This is uh, WNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Weeki Wachee, and beyond, We'll uh, speak with you again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. on Talking Animals. Thanks.